I'm super grateful to have Father Shannon Kearns on the podcast today. Uh, Shannon is a former fundamentalist who became the first openly transgender man ordained in the old Catholic priesthood. Shannon Kearns believes in the transformative power of story. And as an ordained priest, a playwright, a theologian, and a writer of all of his works revolve around making meaning through his story. He's the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which also has a podcast, which I highly recommend. His first book is called In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture, which was just released by Erdman's Books. He's also started and led the Uprising Theater Company for six years, which we'll talk about. So I'm really grateful, Shannon, to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I know like these like little bios, like boilerplate. Is there anything I should add? Anything that else is going on that you want to mention? No, I think that those are those are the high points. You know, I think that that combination of um, theology and church life and work and background, like I've been in the church my whole life, um, but also storytelling and creativity and um, and the arts is that intersection is kind of where I live and where my sweet spot is. Um, so I'm excited to, to talk about both. Awesome. Awesome. Well, so I'm actually like in school again. Uh, I'm getting my master's in social work. And a lot of our early assignments are on identity formation. So we're doing a lot of work like who are we analyzing, like how we're perceived by others and really doing a lot of deep inner work, which I did not expect in a social work program. I thought we were going to be studying like social policy, which we are. Um, But I've been having to really do a lot of like in-depth analysis of myself and who I am. And I want to chat with you a little bit about identity formation. And if you can share a little bit about your identity formation, because I know that it's specifically difficult for those that are gender minorities, sexual minorities, or anybody who's in the margins um, to have to talk about like who they are and how their identity has been formed. Yeah. And I, I think for me, um, my identity was really shaped by growing up. I, I grew up in a rural area. Um and in the 80s and 90s, so like back before access to the internet and cable television and Google, none of those things existed. We had three TV channels, four if we got the rabbit yeah. ears to line up just right. You know? um, yeah. And so it's like it, that kind of sense of just being really a- away from the world and what my family as fundamentalist evangelicals would have talked about, like being protected. Right. And that, but, but I remember both that sense of protection, but also of isolation and really forming an identity in a vacuum almost. Right. I'm, I'm forming an identity that is counter to the identity of everyone in my church, um, but I don't have any language for that. And I think that that, language piece is um is probably why i became a writer <laughs> like that search for language and words uh, because that that not being able to name myself was such a present piece of my growing up experience of like feeling feeling all of these things and these strong emotions and f- going through puberty and feeling like really disconnected from my body And now I would look back and be like, oh, you were depressed. You were struggling with gender dysphoria, right? All of these things that I now can name, but at the time had no no language for. Um, And that sense of of not being able to name yourself is so 
alienating. Um, and it makes you feel like you're the only one in the world. And of course, now I know that I'm not the only one in the world, right? There are lots of, of trans and gender minorities and we've existed for forever. Um, but when I think about formation, it's very much in the sense of, of isolation um, and of, and of silence and of lack of language. And that has really, I think, both shaped how I understand myself and also very much still continues to shape the work that I do today. Yeah, as, as you were sharing, I was thinking about, yeah, I, um, you know, I was very like privileged to be in an area where I went to a Christian church, a Christian elementary school. So I saw all my same friends at church, at school. Um, and I also had the privilege of being white in Orange County, cisgender, heterosexual. So for me, life was great. Like that was like, I saw that represented in the media, uh, my presidents, like I had all those benefits. So hearing your story, um, you're in, in an environment where you're now having to reconcile like your own feelings of identity, uh, being trans, not having the language, not having the resources that we have today, because now you can just Google like how you're feeling yeah. and like and be able to find your community. Um, but I also, I grew up also in the eighties. So like, yeah, I, I totally know like, like not being able to like research, we didn't have that available availability back then. Um, <laughs> yeah. So tell me about like, as you were struggling to like not having the words, not having someone you can talk to and feeling uh, just not right in your body, but not quite sure how to express that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, at the time, you know, this is, I, I really started to feel discomfort with my body around puberty. Um, and I know some folks know that they're trans much earlier. For me, the, the real sense of disconnect happened around puberty. Um, I can definitely look at things in childhood and be like, oh yeah, there are maybe some other signs there and happening. Um, but when I started to really become conscious of like, something is, is weird was, was, you know, 12, 13. Um, and I, I think it's also to name, important to name that, like, this is also the height of purity culture in evangelicalism. And so, so many of the things that I was feeling, it was easy to blame or, or at least like, to, to kind of put on purity culture or like, I am I, I'm uncomfortable with my body because I'm being really modest, right? So I'm going to wear extra baggy clothes because I'm trying to be super modest. Or um, I don't like boys, but like that's just because I'm like being super chaste and I've signed the true love waits commitment card, right? And then and then in Sunday school and church, I'm hearing all of these things from you know the Apostle Paul's letters about the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there became all of these things where I could say, well, I'm just, yeah, the flesh is bad. So I'm just going to ignore my body. And looking back, it's clear that like, these were all coping mechanisms to, to deal with not understanding what was happening in my body, not being able to, not knowing gender dysphoria was a thing. Um, just knowing that I felt really uncomfortable and that like, I wanted to cover up and hide um, and, and really like felt like I wanted my body to go away. Um, but it was, e it was easy to spiritualize it because I was in this system and culture that was saying, 
well, yeah, our bodies are bad, so we really shouldn't pay attention to them. So it became this really, really intertwined weirdness around gender and sexuality, but also Christianity. Um, And it took me a long time to really like separate out all the strands and be like, oh, this is what was happening. Um, So, you know, kind of late into high school, there started to be more pop culture. Ellen DeGeneres came out when I was 16 or 17. And I remember that being like a big watershed moment in our church. Um, And I remember having really looked up to Ellen as someone who wore boyish clothes and was always single. And I remember when she came out thinking like, oh, uh uh-oh, like, what is, what is her coming out going to say about me? Like, are people going to see in me what they saw in her? Like, that feels really scary. Um, I was starting to realize at this point that, like, I was maybe attracted to women, but, like, I didn't really know what to do with any of that. Um, And so that became this kind of five or six year period of really grappling with sexuality, mostly, because I still didn't have language around gender. Um, You know, constantly being like, I'm struggling with homosexuality. Um, I, I'm like trying to pray it away, like all of these different things while also still like feeling really uncomfortable in my body and also feeling like I do have deep faith. Like I, I don't want to let God down. I don't want to walk away from Christianity, but I'm like, not sure where I fit anymore. And I'm not sure if there's space for me. And it also became really apparent, especially as I got to college that like the Christian structure that I was in didn't really have space for depression or mental health. It was really this sense of we're just happy and joyful all the time. And if you're not happy and joyful all the time, then there's like something wrong with you and also probably something wrong with your faith. Mm. And so I was really grappling with like, I am not happy all the time. Like what, how do I fit into this, space like is there a world in which i can be honest about my feelings is there a world that has space for me to be sad sometimes is there a a a faith that has room for all of me um and in my evangelical christian college it was a real struggle to feel i didn't feel like there was a a faith or a space that had room for all of me um and that kind of set me on a on a journey of not leaving Christianity, but kind of leaving the evangelicalism that I had grown up in because it just, I felt like it didn't have space for me. It didn't have space for my questions. And I kept looking around and saying, I I feel like, I feel like there's a whole lot of people that aren't in these rooms that I'm in that should be, but like, there's no, there's no space for them here. Like, why would they ever even walk in the door um, if we're not making room for them? And, and that, question I think also is what drove me into art of like I felt like art was a space that I could ask questions and not have to have all of the answers and that was like that was a big relief of to be in to be in one space where I could be like great we're not gonna solve it we're just gonna ask a lot of questions um and we're gonna we're gonna feel it together and that felt like a real gift that that theater and Mm -hmm. and creative creative space can you talk about, you just mentioned having to leave this other tradition that was not serving you and actually harming you in, in many ways. Because um, leaving a previous faith or the faith that we grew up in 
and, and evolving can be very painful because it can mean like separation from friends. It can mean doubting yourself, doubting your own salvation. And it's, it's not something that none of us want to experience, but a lot of us like sometimes have to go through that. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that kind of that death of that faith and how you emerge from that. Yeah, it was really hard. You know, it was all I had known. I, not only did I grow up in this tradition, I was homeschooled. So like that became my entire social life. And, and then I went to a college that was affiliated with the church that I grew up in. So like my entire world was this very specific religious tradition. Um, and it was, it was scary to start to step outside of that because we were very much a church that taught that, you know, <laughs> we're the ones who have it right. And everyone else, mm-hmm. including other Christians, like yeah. mm, not so much, we're not really sure <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, right. And so I remember the first time I went to like an American Baptist church, which is frankly, not that far out of the church, right. But people that I had grown up with were a little scandalized by the mm-hmm. fact that I was, um, maybe going to be in this other church. But for me, it was, I think part of it was really following my curiosity and following my questions. Like I, I, there was, there came a point in my college career where I was like, I'm just going to give myself permission to ask all of these questions. Mm. And I'm also going to give myself time to find the answers. I'm, I'm not going to, demand of myself that I immediately be able to like hand someone my whole new systemic theology in five minutes, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go on this journey. Um, and I, th- and part of that was a really deep seated belief in sense that God, if God was, was worthy to be worshiped, God had to have space and a big enough ego and, right? The, all of the things to handle my questions. And if God couldn't handle me, my like questions, then something, something much deeper was happening and was wrong. And so I really gave myself permission to, to say, I'm going to ask all of the questions. And then the other thing that I kind of committed to during this time was I'm not going to hold on to any belief just because I've been told to believe it. Like that is no longer serving me. So so what I'm going to do is I'm going to chase all of it down to the bottom and then and we're, I'm going to see what survives. And the, the thing that I found is that lots of it did survive, right? Like so much of it survived. Um, I never felt like I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Like something in that Jesus story continued to compel me all the way through. But what I found was that there was a lot of other ways to believe about certain things that had felt really upsetting to me, like Jesus's death on the cross and why that happened and people being sent to hell forever and queer and trans folks um, and the rapture, right? Like yeah, all yeah. of these things that I had been taught were so central um, and that there was only one way to believe about them. What I learned is actually that there are lots of ways to believe about them and the evangelical way was like the most recent <laughs> that yeah. that for centuries and centuries and that was for me honestly learning church history was was almost more vital to me than learning mm. more theology because when i saw 
Like, oh, for the first thousand years of the church, no one believed in eternal damnation. Like, that is not what was happening. Then it was like, oh, wait a second. Well, then something else is going on here that's not just about, like, they have it wrong and we have it right, or you're a bad Christian for asking questions. Like there's something much more complex happening. And when I was able to then do that work, then it was like, oh, there's, there's incredible goodness and richness here. Um, And that led me like out of the community that I came from, but into other and new communities that had space for me that welcomed questions um, that were willing to sit in the unknowing. Right. Like I think that that, sense of being allowed to not be certain all the time is is a real weight off when you come from a, a tradition that says no like we have to have we have to have answers for everything yeah. all the time um to be able to be like no actually we can we can just say i don't know and that's okay yeah yeah that's super helpful i, I remember having kind of a similar experience um when i was like 16 17 and i, and I grew up at a church called calvary chapel in costa mesa oh, yeah and very blessed, like they were grounded in the word, like every week it was like, go through the Bible, verse by verse, expository teaching, like very blessed to be able to go through the Bible that way, which meant like you don't skip any of the hard texts that are <laughs> generally avoided <laughs> by, by some churches, but you, but also is terrifying, right? Because you, especially like there's so many passages that are absolutely terrifying for kids and uh and even now as an adult um that that horrifies me like i think about lot and his daughters and him offering his daughters to be raped by these masses of people and he's like considered like a hero of the faith lot and i'm like oh my gosh like this guy like really (laughs) um or you think about david and Bathsheba and like the power dynamics there and uh essentially rape is happening there and this is like the man who who god loved and close to his heart um, but I remember like back then, this is back in the early eighties when dispensationalism was at its peak. Right. And we were all feeling like, and my pastor at the time was like, the rapture is probably going to happen 1984 ish. Like he didn't give the exact date, but it seemed like, yeah. right. Like things were lining up with Israel and like, like that was like our big focus was is what Israel is doing and end times and, and, uh, but I remember like when it didn't happen, like all of a sudden, like, oh, are, were they wrong? And I started to really question. And then like I was 16, 17, really getting to realize like, oh, this whole idea of dispensationalism is like fairly new. Like the yeah. last hundred years, it wasn't like, and again, getting to your point about church history being really important. Like I didn't get that until like later I started to realize like, oh, this doctrine is like super recent was never never taught by the early church. Yeah, that that actually, you know, lots of people assume that my faith changed because of my identity, right? That I like needed to I don't know, excuse my identity. Um but it was it was actually the rapture that did it. Was <laughs> that was one of the big first cracks for me when I realized that John Nelson Darby invented the idea of the I was like, wait, this thing that I've been terrified of since I was 4, like that I was going to get left behind. Yeah. Right? is not was not the earliest church was like some dude in england 150 years ago are you kidding me (laughs) and that for me was a moment i was like i don't know if they lied to me about this like they might have been lying about some other things and i i've got to figure out um figure out some answers but yeah yeah 
Yeah, well. yeah. It's it's interesting, like how like different doctrines for us, we start to unravel them, and it's like, oh, well, that's wrong. What else? What yeah. other teachings may be off? And this is why, like, I think your passion for scripture, going to seminary, wanting to study church history, wanting to understand the Bible better. I mean, that that curiosity, I think we all need to have. Yeah, I think that learning to read the Bible, you know, like you, I grew up in a tradition that really, really took scripture seriously, right? That we read it all the time. I was a Bible quizzer. I memorized large portions of it. Like this is this is what you do. Um, and I remember, you know, I went to a, a seminary where we we got to take a test to to test out of. They had so you had to take Hebrew scriptures and the Newer Testament, but they had these one credit courses that were like Old Testament essentials or something. That was like if you didn't know the Bible very well, you had to take this course in order to do the the, the bigger course. But you could also take a test, and I was like, I <laughs> seminary is really expensive. I'm going to take this test to see if I can yeah clip out of it. So I no studying, showed up, took the test. Got out of both of them. And I was like, oh, this is because I went to an evangelical. Like, I know my Bible. But the thing that I hadn't ever been taught was, like, the context around the Bible. Like, I didn't know anything about what was happening in the political world at that time. I didn't really even understand how the Bible was put together or, you know, reading it from Genesis to Revelation, you just kind of assume, well, it's in chronological order. Like, no, it's not. It's it's not in chronological order the way it was written. It's not how it happened. Um, and so learning all of that helped me to really start to to understand scripture for the first time. I, I, I felt like I knew the Bible, but I don't feel like I understood it until I started to learn all of the context around it. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about now is equipping other folks to do that work so that you're not reliant on a pastor or a professor so that you don't have to go to seminary. Listen, my seminary experience was incredible. It was also very expensive. So I'm like, I'm always saying you can get this education in other ways and it will totally change how you read scripture. Um, and that that even learning some really fundamental things like what was happening in the Roman Empire when Jesus was living and and doing his ministry will totally radically change how you read the Gospels um, and will not always make sense of some of those scary passages, but you'll start to understand in a different way what those passages are doing, what those stories are trying to teach. Um, and sometimes it's like, the story is trying to teach that they got it wrong, right? That like Lot maybe was not the hero and that that's the lesson, right? Um, and so, but that nuance I think is really hard if you don't have some of the larger context around it. Yeah. Um, it was so funny. I was talking to my wife about, we were just talking about the Lot story just recently. That's why it was in my mind. And she was like, we were in the car driving and it just came up and she's like, what? She's like, and Lot's wife's the one gets turned into a pillar of salt. Like, really? <laughs> like, all yeah. she did was turn around and look. And you had Lot, yeah. like, offering his daughters to be raped. It was like, huh? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, there's another, um, the, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? Yes. That was a huge story in, in my church growing up. Um, and it was always about, like, look how obedient 
Abraham was, that he was willing to even like kill his own child in order to follow God. And I was talking with a Jewish theologian um, not too long ago. And she was like, yeah, like in the Jewish tradition, we read that story totally differently. We don't read that story as about Abraham's obedience. We read that as a story where God was testing Abraham and Abraham failed. Abraham failed the test. His What he was supposed to do is say, absolutely not. Like, God, I'm not going to do that. Like, and that, that there is there is textual support that after mm-hmm. that moment, God never again speaks to Abraham mm-hmm. in the way that he did before. And I think that, like, that's also a moment where learning from how how Jewish folks are reading Torah, how they're interpreting those stories is also, like, really, really important because that's a lot of things that we miss. Um, and that was that, those stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph when I was doing research for my book around those stories, those were some of the ones that I was like, oh, there's some really interesting and surprising things about generational trauma, mm-hmm. about masculinity, about like gender that is happening, that is that is really shaping the context of these stories. And the the almost cutesy way I was taught them of like, oh, just just be willing to do whatever for God is like not actually the the most responsible way to read these stories. Yeah, no doubt. I think, um, yeah, similar to you, like I think the, the children versions of the stories were like focused on like, it's just the faith and you're like, okay, it's the faith. But then as you start getting older and start to really look at the text and ask those questions that you're asking, it's no longer satisfying. You're actually kind of horrified yeah. at the story. Yeah. 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 Have you, what did you find was useful in helping you to like pull back from these texts and to start to examine the different lenses that you had when coming to scripture and, and almost like knowing how to like take off the lens and maybe put on a Jewish lens or, and another type of lens when reading the Bible. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think there are like three things I would say. One is um, to, as best as you can approach texts, stories with beginner's mind. Um, and that is really, really hard to do, especially for those of us who grew up hearing these stories over and over again. Um, But one of the things that I will do in classes that I'm teaching is I will have people pick a passage to work on, a story to work with, um, and to read it every day and just ask questions for one week that you're not allowed to answer anything. You just have to ask questions and that you have to ask the most basic of all questions. So if you're dealing with a story that's talking about Jesus, like who is Jesus is a great question. Um, and to not assume that you actually know any of the answers. And and that process is wildly frustrating <laughs> for people. <laughs> but that continually going back and being like, no, I'm just going to I'm just going to uncover a new layer of questions, I think, puts us in a in a different posture towards the text. So that's one thing um, I have found the work of Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crisson particularly when they're writing together, to be incredibly profound. So they have um, three books 
One is called The First Christmas, one is called The Last Week, and one is something about Paul. I can never remember the full title. Um, but Croissant is a historian, Borg was a pastor, and they write about um, understanding these texts. And so in The First Christmas, for instance, they go, narr- you know, Christmas narrative by Christmas narrative and talk mm-hmm. about the differences between them, why there were differences what was happening in Rome at the time, all of the historical references. Hugely, hugely helpful. And then the third thing, I think, is to read a lot of books from people who are doing theology from a very particular place, who are naming the place that they're doing it from. So for instance, when you're reading Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a Latin liberation theologian, he's talking about, I am doing theology with and from the perspective of poor people in Latin America. That is how we are reading the Gospels. When you read James Cone, he's like, I am reading the Gospels from a Black American lens, right? Like, these are folks who are saying, my context is absolutely influencing how I'm reading these texts. And not only do I not think that that's a bad thing, I think that, like, something incredible happens when we do that. And so reading any kind of theology, whether that's trans theology or queer theology or womanist or feminist or liberation or black, right? Any of the the folks that are being really specific about where they're doing theology from is helpful. Because then I think the, the trick, right, is that many of us were taught like this is theology and it's like all by white cis European men. Right. And then everything else is like identity politics. Yeah. It's like, no, it's, it's actually all theology. Yeah, <laughs> It's just the folks that are na- doing it from an identity are naming where they're doing it from. And they're not claiming to have a universal experience. And they're saying, like, of course, of course, the fact that I'm black and living in America is going to shape how I read a passage about masters and slaves. Of course that. Like, how could it not? Um, and I think that, like, dishonesty comes when people do theology and they say, well, like, this is just objective. It's like, well, no, like, of course you're reading a passage about men as a man in a very different way than a woman's going to read that. Like you can't, you can't universalize that. It's not, it's not possible. Um, And so I think really, really paying attention to where people are doing theology from has helped me to pay attention to the own, my own lens that I'm bringing to it and where things might be, skewed in in the theology of folks that are claiming objectivity yeah that's just a beautiful way to look at it um because i think all these different points of view are super helpful to give other dimensions of the text like you're saying um yeah i I, it's so funny because i i've been involved in like lots of different types of churches and i've been in some like non-denominational churches i've been in some very very conservative churches and seen how the same passages were interpreted differently now they're all christian but like to your point that the lens is different so some of the more conservative like or uh orthodox presbyterian churches i was in you'd have a very strict sabbath holding uh women definitely were not allowed to speak in the church um head coverings were encouraged Right. So, but then I go to other Christian churches that were maybe not as conservative, where um, women were allowed to lead Bible studies for other women. Right. Uh, then I go to other more progressive churches where, like, women can even preach from the pulpit 
with men in the audience. So like, it all depended on the lens you were in, but they all had different perspectives that were useful to me to understand, oh, interesting to see how these verses are taken in different ways. Yeah, and I think that, you know, often there's this idea that more liberal or progressive folks are like just ignoring scripture. And it's like, no, actually, we're taking it really, really seriously. We're just interpreting it differently. Um, And we're using different tools to interpret, which doesn't mean that we're, that we can't, we don't have an answer for, you know, critiques around women in ministry or LGBTQ folks. It just means that we're, we're, we're approaching this with a completely different interpretive lens and a way of reading scripture. Um, and I think that like, it's important to name that we're doing that because of our faith yes. and we're doing that because of how we read scripture and because of how seriously we take it, that it calls us to say, there is more welcome here. There is more um, inclusivity. There is more space. What have you found to be useful when, when chatting with a, um, with another Christian who has maybe a strong disagreement with your theology, what have you found to be helpful in having like a empathic discussion um, on those topics to help also highlight unity with them? So there's, there's kind of two things I would say here is, um, you know, one is that I found storytelling to be really helpful to, um, to really, share my story and my faith with people. I I think that often we get into arguments around interpretation or Bible verses that are just like not helpful um, and that don't actually go anywhere. And, and I say that like, again, not because I can't argue in that way, but because like, I just don't think that that's helpful. Um, And I also think that like the interpretations, especially around LGBTQ folks and scripture, like, all of that work exists. And so if someone really cared, they could go read a book or watch the YouTube video. Like it's, mm-hmm. it, it's all there. Um, so there's that. But I do think that like entering into storytelling and saying like, this is how my faith has been shaped. This is what I believe in. Um, this is how I live my life has, has been really helpful and often takes a conversation much further. I, I do think, though, that there comes a point, and, and so some of this is also figuring out who is actually entering into a conversation in good faith, right? And I can usually tell that pretty quickly if someone is actually willing to to be in dialogue. And I think that, you know, I can disagree with people on lots of different things, even theological things, and we can absolutely still be unified. We can still unite around the things that that we care about. But I do think that there comes often a point where like unity is no longer possible. Mm. And it's like, if you don't think that I should exist, like if you are someone who is trying to legislate trans people out of existence, like I'm not actually interested in unity with you because like we can't, I can't be in a space with someone who is trying to negate my humanity. Like that's, that's not good for me. And honestly, like trying to be unified with that, like it's not good for them either. Yeah. Like they need to know that beliefs like that have consequences. That that they don't get to just vote how they want privately and then have their kids in their lives, right? Like that's that's not how we right. that's not how we do this. Um, and so I I, I want to like draw that point too that especially for folks from marginalized identities, like you don't have to 
be in spaces or be in relationship with people who are actively trying to harm you. And that, like, that can be your parents, that can be a church, um, and you can figure out your own boundaries, right? We do a lot of work with folks at queertheology.com about, like, what does a boundary look like? Where do you want to set them? Um, and sometimes it's like boundaries can shift and change over the years, right? That There have been things that I've been willing to put up with um, at, at earlier points in my life that I'm not like I'm just not in a place where I can do that anymore. Um, and so, but I think it's important to to let folks know that like it's okay for you to set boundaries and to say I'm not going to engage in conversations about this, not because I can't, but because it's not healthy for me, or I'm not going to be in places where you won't use no. my name and pronouns, no. right? Like that's I don't have to be. I don't have to be in a harmful place um, out of some sense of unity. Absolutely. Amen. Um, before we go, I wanted to chat with you about um, texts of the Bible that you find very much empowering as a gender minority and maybe passages for um, the queer folks listening in would find helpful or encouraging in their own journeys. Yeah, I love this question. Um, so. Passages that have been really helpful for me. I, I love all of the stories of eunuchs um, in scripture, um, folks who, you know, were outside of the gender norms of their day, who um, explicitly over and over again are extended welcome in Isaiah, in Acts. Um, I've also been really moved by the story of Peter and kind of that whole sequence from Acts chapter 8 through Acts 10 and 11, where really the movement of of the Jesus followers is opened up to outsiders and Gentiles for the first time um, through the, the eunuch from Ethiopia up through Peter at Cornelius' house. Like, I think that all, mm. all of that to me encapsulates in three chapters what the entire arc of scripture mm. is, which is like more justice, more inclusion, um, the kingdom of God being big enough for all people. So that's, that's all been really meaningful to me. I think um, the other thing that's been really impactful, which is my answer to the second part of your question, is like what other passages, is to be really attuned to looking for where queerness, transness, the violation of boundaries and binaries is already present in scripture that like, we don't have to look for, for instance, a gay character um, or, or for an explicit naming of like, this is this, this person in the Bible was trans. Like, I, I don't know that that's always all that helpful. We have different understandings of gender and sexuality than they did back then. But I do think that like throughout scripture, I can look at a passage and be like, Oh, there's something happening here. Like in the story of Abraham, Abraham leaves his family in order to follow this new God who's calling him out into a new way of being. Like I understand something about that as a queer and trans person, right? Like there is, that is something that is fundamental to how I've experienced my own journey and how I've heard many, many other folks talk about their journeys. So like, we don't have to, we don't have to like import queerness or transness into the text. Like it's already there. Mm. We just have to pay attention to it. 
And so the thing for me is always to say, like, to give permission for people to see their stories reflected in scripture. And once you give yourself permission to do that, suddenly you see it everywhere. Like you're seeing it in Abraham, you're seeing it in Jacob, you're seeing it in Rahab, you're seeing it in Ruth, like you're seeing it in all of these places. Um, and it becomes a really profound way of reading that that isn't doing, it's not reading the text or doing it harm, right? You're you're doing an interpretive lens that's already there. It's our, it's already inherent in the text. You're just now relating that to what's happening in your own life. And I think that that way of reading is really powerful. That's beautiful. And I think that's all like, like growing up um, at a non-denominational church, like that was what we did. Like we read the Bible and we tried to find ways that it applied to us personally. Yeah. Um, and that's where yeah. it becomes very powerful and meaningful to us. This is why scripture can be so attractive to us because it speaks to our hearts. It, I, I think about the Psalms and the laments which would be so meaningful to me when I'm in pain and I see these biblical characters and the Psalms like crying out to God, where are you? Like I can see like with a queer lens, how powerful those texts are when you're hurting. Yeah. 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 And I think that's why it's also so important to go back to that conversation about lenses that we're reading in community, right. And that we're reading in community with people who are, seeing differently from us right because the the danger in some of in some of potentially reading a a passage and and relating to your own life is that you could read a passage that is like meant to comfort oppressed people where you are actually doing oppressing and then you're being like oh this is for me and it's like actually no you're the bad guy (laughs) in that text and i think that like that's okay, right? Like that is actually also instructive. And and part of my learning to read has been to say like, actually often in these texts, I'm the villain. As a white person who's living in America, who is like middle-class, like I am part of oppressive systems. And this these texts are also calling me to account to pay attention to like, how am I contributing to the oppression of poor people? of black and brown people, of women, right? Like, I think it's important that we, it's a both and, mm-hmm. right? We see ourselves, we take comfort, and we also pay attention to the places of conviction and the places where we're being called um, to do more and to be better and to participate more fully in the kingdom of God. Mm. Beautiful. And that's what scripture does. It encourages us. It also challenges us and points out our flaws, our weaknesses. And yeah. That's beautiful. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for for being on the podcast, for for sharing your perspectives. I found it fascinating, super helpful. Uh, For those that want to learn more about you, your work, your podcast, your plays, uh, where can they they find that? Yeah, so I am on um, all of the social media at Shannon T.L. Kearns. Um, That is also my website, shannontlkearns.com. And then with Brian G. Murphy, we're at queertheology.com. That's where we've got the podcast. Um, And we've also, we're on all of the social medias at either Queer Theology or Q Theology. There are a couple of people that got in faster than us <laughs> on the social media. But if you search for us, um, we're there. Brian and I share all of the queer theology accounts. So if you DM, you'll get one of us. And then I've I've got all of my own stuff. So 
Okay, awesome. Well, I'll make sure to put that all in the show notes. It'll be on the blog as well as YouTube video about section and comments. So thank you so much, Shannon. Oh, my pleasure. This was this was a really lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.